0: You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus.
1: Music has always been a big part of my life playing in bands and writing music, leading worship. When I was a kid, my brother and sister and I, we used to go to seniors' homes at Christmas time and we'd sing carols and there was something about those traditional lyrics and melodies. They just bring so much warmth and joy. Even as a kid, I I always found it so rewarding to see the smiles on the faces. For some of those seniors at at the homes we would go to, their bodies were so weak and frail that they couldn't even sing along or, or tap a finger or a toe to the beat. But you could just see the joy in their eyes as we sang Silent Night or Away in a Manger. I love Christmas music, especially the classics. There's Bing Crosby or Frank Sinatra, Michael Buble. I actually really enjoy being at the mall and when it's all decked out in flocked greenery and Santa's workshop, there's the gold and silver ornaments and the Christmas music. The sound of sleigh bells followed by Mariah Carey's iconic vocal runs signifies the start of this new season. It marks the start of my favorite time of year. Today we're going to look at the very first Christmas song that's ever written. It's a song that's referred to as Mary's Song. And this song doesn't only represent the start of a new season that's decked with boughs of holly. It's the start. It's the inauguration of a new age. The age to come under the rule and reign of King Jesus. So our teaching text is from Luke chapter 1. If you have a Bible beside you, feel free to turn there right now, Luke chapter 1. And and while you do that, let me just remind you what's happening in around this text that we're about to read together. There's a young woman, her name's Mary, and she's engaged to marry a carpenter named Joseph. And there's nothing overly special about this couple that's about to get married. They, They live in a simple little town, a town that's kind of scoffed at by the surrounding communities. It's called Nazareth, and and Mary's probably bustling around as she's preparing for her upcoming wedding. I imagine she's talking to the caterer. She's she's planning the decor. She's picking up her dress from King David's bridal, and then she gets interrupted by a visitor. She's visited by an angel, and that visit, that interruption, it changes everything. The angel Gabriel comes to her, and and he tells her that, that she's found favor with God that she's been chosen to bear the Messiah, the Son of God. The conversation goes on and Mary's scared. She's confused as anyone would be as they kind of encounter this heavenly being. And she says to the angel Gabriel, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. The angel explains that this is gonna be a work of the spirit, that this is something that God will do. And in a true act of courage, and I really think it was that, it was a true act of courage, Mary agrees. And she says these beautiful words. She says, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Mary knew what agreeing to what the angel was saying would would mean for her. It would have huge implications on her life. Would Joseph understand? What would her family say? To get pregnant outside of marriage was completely unacceptable in, in the culture that she lived in. It could result in her getting cut off from her family, shunned by her village. She'd be mocked. She could be ridiculed. Would people believe her that this was God's baby? But despite the questions and the fear that was likely rolling around in her mind, she said yes. She submitted to what God was asking her to do. Then Mary goes to see her cousin Elizabeth, and there's this really interesting encounter where Elizabeth acknowledges that the baby inside Mary's womb is in fact the promised Messiah, that that Mary is the mother of her Lord. And that's where Mary just bursts into this song. It feels like a moment in musical theater to me where there's just too much joy to just say it in words. This moment calls for a melody. It's the first ever Christmas carol. And I've actually asked Alyssa if she would read it for us from Luke chapter two. So listen to these words as Alyssa reads them.
0: Luke one, chapter 46 to 56. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home.
1: Isn't that beautiful? A number of scholars have noted that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is the first ever Christian theologian. She's carrying the savior of the world in her womb and she's filled with such incredible joy that she just starts to sing about what this means for her and what the coming of Jesus means for Israel and for the world and it's rich. There's so much in this song that I would love to look at together. Let's talk about reversals. This, this song points to so much in regards to a great reversal but in the short amount of time that we have together, I just wanna look at two big theme themes that Mary's song teaches us about the character of God. We're going to look at the mercy of God and the justice of God. His mercy and his justice. And how these two characteristics are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. First, Mary's song is a song of mercy. And she starts the song explaining what that mercy means for her personally. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord. and My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed because I've been chosen to be the mother of my Lord. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. When you think of mercy, what image comes to mind? For me, I think of a game I used to play when I was a kid. Maybe you also played this game where where two people would stand head to head and and you'd grab each other's hands and usually you'd be squirming and flailing all over the room trying to bend the other person's fingers until they tapped out and they would shout what? They'd shout, mercy, mercy. Did you ever play that as a kid? I, I think it's a pretty accurate picture of what many of us think of when we think about this idea of mercy, this sort of rescue from pain isn't that the felt need of our world right now, a need to be rescued from pain? I would guess that, that each of us who are watching right now have experienced some level of pain, especially in the past two years, whether emotional pain, and maybe it's loneliness or a sense of rejection or grieving the death of a loved one, or maybe it's relational pain between family members and close friends, physical pain. And there's the floods that just happened in our province and families have lost their homes and farms are wiped out and people are struggling with severe mental health and suicide rates are up in our province and in our country. The earth is groaning. There's so much brokenness and heartache all around us. And when we cry out to God in our prayers and we say, God have mercy, it's easy for us to think, maybe even in our subconscious, that God is the one who's responsible for our pain. And when we're saying have mercy, we're doing it in a way just like we would in the game when our opponent is bending our hands to the point where we can't withstand it anymore. We're saying mercy, God have mercy. But here's the thing, this is important. God is not the one who causes our pain. Sin and bad decisions and pride and jealousy of humankind has led us to this moment we find ourselves in today. But God is not the one who causes our pain. No, instead he came and he entered into our mess. He entered into our pain and he promises a future hope where, where all pain, all suffering, all, all sorrow is eradicated. Theodore Parker Ferris said this. He said, it seems almost inevitable to me that Jesus should go through this kind of darkness. If you think of Jesus as God disguised as man, then this will have no meaning for you. But if you think of him as a real man who in his very depth of his manhood disclosed the very nature of the Godhead, then this suffering is inevitable. This is an intrinsic part of human existence. And here's the key. The utmost depth of human misery has been plumbed by the incarnate Lord. Jesus, God in the flesh, experienced the worst of human pain. And so when we experience grief, or trauma, or disappointment, or betrayal, or disease, or depression, he's not only with us, but he shares in our suffering. This word mercy comes from the Greek word eleos, which means to show compassion. It's the New Testament version of one of my favorite words in the Old Testament, it's the word hesed. And, and that those words have this beautiful meaning and really help us to understand the heart of God as it relates to showing mercy towards us. Check out this definition. The consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God. <laughs> That's so good, let me, let me read that definition again. The consistent, ever faithful, relentless, constantly pursuing, lavish, extravagant, unrestrained, furious love of God. And and Mary goes on to sing about what this mercy of God means for, for the oppressed and for the hungry and for the poor, but she starts by worshiping God for what his mercy, what his Elias means for her personally. Look at verse 47. She said, "'And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, "'for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant.'" Can you imagine being Mary? The, the God of the universe, Yahweh, the one that, that you and all of your ancestors have been worshiping. God has chosen to come into the world through her, through Mary, through the, the the womb of a 14-year-old girl from nowhere Nazareth. And with every kick, you know, my wife, Jorley, is pregnant right now and we're expecting in January. And our little baby girl is kicking and moving nonstop, all day and all night. You can even see the kicks if you just watch her stomach. But thinking about Mary, with every kick that Mary feels in her womb, she's reminded that she was chosen by God, that he looked favorably upon her, that the coming of Jesus would drastically change the trajectory of her life, and the generations would call her blessed because she would bear the Messiah. The mercy that God shows to Mary starts with him looking on her. Verse 48, for he looked on her on the humblest estate of his servant. He saw her. And I think that's a word for someone watching today. Maybe in this moment, you feel invisible, like no one sees you. You went into quarantine and you feel like no one even noticed. Maybe your family and your friends have disappointed you. They haven't been there for you like you needed them to be. Maybe you feel like even God has forgotten about you. But he hasn't. He sees you and, and just like he looked on Mary with Elias, with mercy, with compassion. He looks at you today with that same lavish, extravagant, unrestrained love and compassion. He sees you and he has eyes of mercy and compassion towards you. He doesn't only have love and mercy for the whole world, for the cosmos as a whole, but he has love and mercy for you. He looks on you even in the mess that you find yourselves in and he has compassion. He says, I want you. Mary's song urges that that we should receive that mercy and compassion from God, but then she goes on to say that we should extend that mercy, that we should receive it, but then we should also extend it. We live in a pretty merciless age, don't you think? If if anything, I would say that the last two years hasn't been marked by mercy, it's been marked by meanness. And unfortunately, that's not only true of non-Christians, but meanness has also crept inside the church and i get it we we've we've all been through a lot and we've we've been on a, an emotional roller coaster with everything that this incredibly long season has held but as the people of god as as those who have been recipients of such extravagant grace recipients of Christ's saving work on the cross, we should be liberal in extending mercy and compassion and kindness to those around us. Even those who are different from us, even those who have backwards political leanings and different views on vaccines or the pandemic, even those who rub us the wrong way. Sometimes showing mercy means that that we stay quiet when you could talk. Sometimes showing mercy means that you scroll past a post on Facebook that you really wanna rip into but you don't because you decide to be a person of mercy and compassion instead of giving into the need to be right or to have the last word. Sometimes showing mercy means that you extend extra measures of grace when people don't live up to the expectations that we might have and they disappoint us. That you see those who are on the outside and, and you invite them in, that you model the mercy of God personified in the person of Jesus as you interact with your family and neighbors and coworkers. To be merciful requires that you slow down enough to see people who they really are. That you don't jump to conclusions or make generalizations before taking time to understand the context and the backstory and the pains that that person's walked through. To actually see people, How often do we do we not pay attention to the people who serve us in restaurants or coffee shops or i even think about the cashiers at costco it's so easy to have a lack of patience once i've gotten to the front of the line and and to not even make contact with the person who's ringing me in but maybe being a conduit of god's mercy in that moment just means that i take the time to see them to see the individual to look into their eyes to smile even if it's underneath my mask but to thank them for what they do and, 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 and to make, instead of making sure that they know how frustrated I am because I had to wait. To receive and to show mercy, that's the call of God. And that's what we see in Mary's song. Okay, secondly, Mary's song is a song of justice. It's a song of justice as it points to what the coming of Jesus will mean as it, as it makes everything that's wrong with the world right. If there was a bridge to the song, this would be it. Think about your favorite worship song. Think about Oceans or whatever song it is that you love. And and you're just waiting through the verse and the chorus for it to get to the bridge where you can just belt it out. This is the part of that song. Verse 51 says this. says, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty with their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, the rich he has sent away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. See, the people of God, the Israelites, had been living in oppression under the rule of the Roman government. And and so Mary's song is, is this presentation of a prophetic vision of what the coming of Jesus means for them, means for those who are weary and for those who are oppressed. She's pointing to this sort of upside down kingdom that's being set in motion and it involves a reversal of power. Look at verse 52, it says, he's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is why King Herod was was so greatly troubled when the wise men, when the magi from the east came looking for this newborn king. Herod was troubled because he sensed the massive implications that this would have on his government. The coming of the true king would challenge his narcissistic, hierarchical, rich dominate over the poor strong-crushing-the-weak kind of ruling. The coming of Jesus presents a vision for this new and coming kingdom, a kingdom that's marked by justice, hope for those who have no access to any sort of power structures in society, those who are hopelessly incapable of ever getting a leg up on their own. That being said, let me be clear, you know, our agenda as followers of Jesus is not a political one. Our agenda isn't to dethrone presidents or prime ministers because we don't agree with their policies or because we question their ethics or, or whatever else. Jesus has a lot to say actually about honoring those in authority. And maybe it's important to emphasize that the text says that he, that God will bring down the mighty from their thrones. He is sovereign. He's in control. The battle belongs to the Lord, not us. And whether it's in this life or the next, he will deal with those who use their power and authority for evil and for harm. But the primary role of the church is not to take down political powers, but to model a different way. The kingdom of God is inverted. It's a reversal of the power structures of the world where the last should be first and the first will be last, where it's greater to serve than to be served, where the greatest among us is the servant. The call of the church is to live into this upside down kingdom and to to, to be just in the way that we lead our businesses and our churches and our families, whoever we rule over, that we would do it with mercy and justice, that we would give voice to the voiceless, that we would use our power, whatever power we have, that we'd use it for good and not for harm, that we do go to war on injustice in the world and in society, that we do stand with those who've been oppressed, but we do it in a way that aligns with what Jesus models for us. See, this idea of justice, it wasn't a new one for the Jewish people. They were expecting a messiah to come and to bring about justice, to set the captives free. That that wasn't a new idea, it was expected. But the way Jesus came, the way he brought about justice went against everything they would have expected in the coming king. Even his birth kind of flipped the script. He was from Nazareth of all places. Mary rode into town on a donkey instead of a chariot. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a barn, in a stable. Mary, the, the, the chosen vessel that God would use to bring, bring his son into the world was, was simple and lowly, a poor girl from the rough side of town. And then Jesus' sermons, his teachings, they weren't what was expected either. They were expecting someone like King David, you know, a worshiper, but a warrior. Taking Goliath was hard, but Rome was full of Goliath. And so the Messiah would, would come and he needed to be tough as nails, like King David, but to the nth degree. They were looking for a Messiah who could lead their military into battle, who could take down Rome once and for all. But in the person of Jesus, we see that God took a different approach. I want to zero in on this phrase in Mary's song that he shows strength with his arm. Darrell Johnson, who's a pastor and theologian from Vancouver, really helped me to understand this. That the phrase, the outstretched arm of God, it's first introduced all the way back in Exodus, at the liberation of God's people from Egypt. And this language of God's outstretched arm is repeated through various places throughout the Old Testament, and it relates to God rescuing his people from their enemies. But watch this. In her unborn son, Mary sees the outstretched arm of God. But she also sees this great reversal that's about to take place, even as it relates to to how they would naturally associate the, the arm of God. The expectation was that God would free his people in all the ways that humans think about when they think about power and rescue, but nothing could be further from the way that he does it. Mary quotes the prophet Isaiah in her song, specifically Isaiah chapter 53, where he says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's that phrase again, the arm of the Lord. And Isaiah goes on to to give this prophetic vision for what the outstretched arm of the Lord really looks like. It looks like a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief, who's pierced for our transgression, who's crushed for our iniquities. Mary sees in her child the arm of God. In Jesus, God is bearing his arm, but it's not in the way that was expected, with an army or with a sword. Instead, he bears his arm on a Roman cross. God flexes his muscle and his strength by hanging on a cross. The outstretched arm of Jesus are the outstretched arms of God. He exalts himself to show mercy. God wins his victory over sin and evil and death by letting sin and evil and death win over him. The arm of God accomplishes its greatest work in the moment when he's least competent, when his arm is immobilized by nails binding him to a cross. God's mercy and his justice are fulfilled in that one person, the person of Jesus. Remember earlier, I shared that that game that I used to play as a kid, the game of mercy, bending your opponent's fingers until they tap out and cry for mercy or, or shout for the pain to stop. But mercy isn't the elimination of pain, because if that's mercy, then Advil is mercy. True mercy is not the absence of something, but the presence of someone. It's the presence of Jesus. The presence of the one who's felt all these things that you might feel, who, who promises to walk through the ups and the downs and the pains of life with you, through the diagnosis and the treatments, through the divorce and the custody battles, through the deep emotional wounds that you might have from your family of origin, through discouragement, through depression, through whatever challenges you walk through. And when we look to him, when we receive him, we're shown great compassion and the justice, even the punishment that we deserve for the sin and the evil that we've committed, the penalty that we should have paid are placed upon him, are nailed to the outstretched arms of Jesus on the cross. And in exchange, he offers life. And that's the good news of this season. That's the good news of Christmas and the coming of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage of scripture that teaches us so much about what it looks like to live into your mercy and your justice, to receive your mercy and to receive your justice. I pray specifically for those watching right now who don't know you, who've never experienced your love and your mercy that has said, I pray that you you would speak to them right now, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear this good news of the gospel that comes to us at Christmas. I pray that you would help us to be people who are marked by mercy and justice as we live out our ordinary lives the things that you've called us to. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.